Hey everyone, welcome to the MJL. I'm your host, Mike Lee, and I interview my everyday friends who have hidden talents beyond their regular nine to five day job. Today I have Jason Wan, also known as Flex with Dr. J, an entrepreneurial pain relief coach slash physical therapist who wants you to live a physical pain-free life as much as possible. He creates some of the most enter entertaining and educational videos about physical therapy for moms, dads, uh, grandparents, etc. And I'm happy to have him here on the pod. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Cool. Uh, you know, it's really been a while since we've last seen each other. I think the last time I saw you was maybe like, I don't know what, I'm like 34, right? I'm turning 34 this year. So I'm trying to do the mental math in my mm -hmm. head. And it's probably been about, what, 16, maybe like 16 years or so. Uh, Potentially. Maybe a bit longer than yep. that. Yeah, I think it's about 16. Uh, yeah. How's everything going on your end? It's going well, man. I got a, you know, I got one, a, my own physical therapy business and obviously some social media presence, but yeah, also a new dad. My, my son's turning one next week. So, oh, you know, life, life is cruising. So cannot complain. I am definitely not there yet at the dad level. Uh, and obviously a lot of our friends, uh, my friends and, you know, our mutual friends are becoming new parents, you know, sort of for the first time. Uh, so I'm sure that's kind of been an adjustment and, you know, you have a group of people who are also becoming, you know, new dads and moms that I'm sure you can confide in. Yeah, definitely. Um, moms and dads, I mean, people that I definitely empathize with and people that amongst most people in the world have a lot of responsibility balancing out life, motherhood, fatherhood, and then full-time jobs. So those are some of the best people that I, that I work with. Got it. So I guess to kick this pot off, uh, just, you know, physical therapy, right? Like, I think that is a term that I feel like you only really hear uh, about when you're older um, or if you're, you know, act really active in sports or like you have an injury and it's like, you need to go to physical therapy. Uh, talk to me about mm -hmm. like what physical therapy actually is. Uh, just because if you just took the word separately, physical and therapy, is it just like, I'm working out, I'm giving, you know, my body, you know, like I'm relaxing my body, like break it down so that people really understand what physical therapy actually is and what your role is as a physical therapist. Yeah. I think one of the big misconceptions about physical therapy is like, it's, it's people kind of kid around and say the acronym is like personal torture. It's like PT, okay. but physical therapy, what we are, we're the experts in the musculoskeletal system. So there are medical doctors that are the jack of all trades. They know a lot about many different systems. We don't focus on that. We focus mainly on the muscles, ligaments, joints, and nerves of the body. So anything in relation to nervous system dysfunction or whether you have an injury or a territorial ligament, we are the people that will help you to rehabilitate from those injuries, get back to the activities that you love as fast as possible. And so I'm really big on education because I find that when people come in and they have an injury, I find that's being very reactive. And I, I'm actually taking a more proactive approach to physical therapy saying, even if you don't have pain, even if you have a minor amount of stiffness or something that's just ailing you, that's not really like a freak injury. I find that it's better to prevent rather than to cure. So if people can just take a more proactive approach to their health and perceive more physical therapy as that, I think the the world and, and healthcare would be a better place for sure. 
Got it. So I guess when you're talking about, uh, you know, being proactive about it, like, how would you even know that you have an issue, right? Or potentially would have an issue? Let's say like you were saying like, hey, uh, especially I think for, you know, people of, of our generation where it's like you're in your 20s or 30s, uh, or even, heck, if you're just playing sports as a teen, right? Like, uh, I would say for the most part, we are fairly limber, right? Or like, we're not, aching, we don't have a ton of aches and pains, like all the time in mm -hmm. daily life. Uh, so how mm -hmm. would someone who isn't actually experiencing any pain, you know, be able to identify areas for, you know, being proactive in making sure that they aren't injured? That's a good question. And so when you're talking about injury prevention, you're talking about being on certain programs or routines that you find would be a benefit to you within strength and mobility realm. So for example, I think like, here's a good analogy. You know, we, we take vitamins and we take certain minerals, we eat well, right? And it's the, for the purpose of living longer. You might not have any gut issues. You might not have ulcerative colitis or anything like that, but you know that if you just eat you know, fatty foods all day, it's likely your artery, arteries might get clogged and you might right. experience heart disease later on in life. So you got to experience it as such. Now, some people, they can't really understand, oh, I, I have a limitation in my shoulder range of motion or a limitation here, or I don't know if I'm weak in this area. Well, that's where there are injury prevention programs. Like they start them off pretty young from like, you know, age five all the way to age 15. There's injury prevention programs where when they enroll in that, they see how one person would see how they jump. It could be a physical therapist. It could be a personal trainer, but they, they see how they move in space and they can tell like, hey, these are some things that your kid might need to work on. Um, and even for us age, although we may not have aches and pains, although some of us at our age right, do, right. it's really a matter of, you know, do you want to wait until something breaks down or do you want to do something now while you're young and your body is more limber and is able to adapt to certain strength and mobility programs do things now and work hard now so that you don't have to regret it later. And that's the way I perceive it's like proactivity, injury prevention. Um, and that's kind of the direction that I'm pushing for with my business. Got it. Funny thing is like, and I'll use analogies as well. Like I'm really into like stock investing and, and finance and stuff like that. I'm not obviously here to give any sort of financial advice, but uh, you know, there's this kind of thought about when you, you know, put your money in earlier, right. That, you know, if the longer that you put in, you know, the work, right, or the capital, yep. uh, that those gains compound over time. So it sounds like yep. um, it's very much in that case where it's just like, hey, like, you might not see a ton of value now, but if you put the work in, you put the routine in, uh, you grow your body, you know, you strengthen your body, or you strengthen parts of, you know, your body or you know, muscles that you haven't really explored or used, then that's going to basically have a compounding effect over time, the more that you, you know, basically, I don't, I don't know if dollar cost averaging is like the bright term for it, but just like being on a routine, right, where you're doing it on a yeah. consistent basis, and those, those gains just grow over time. That, I mean, that's a pretty consistent analogy. I mean, obviously, we're talking about money versus the body. And right. I think that the body is pretty resilient to stress. And I think with the right I think with the right mechanical programs and strength and uh, somebody that can actually build it out for you, like an organized routine, uh, somebody that can teach you how to build out everyday movement and stretches and exercise into your daily life, you're going to notice that like, hey, I mean, you you fall when you're 70 years of age, you know, and, and you're strong. 
you might be able to survive that fall and just come out with a bruise versus a person that did not work out through their life and they experienced a hip fracture, right? So it's just the difference between something debilitating versus, hey, I mean, when that happens and it will happen to a lot of us in life, it's it's all the work that you put in like when you were younger. Got it. Uh, I kind of want to roll it back a little bit in terms of what made you want to become like a physical therapist. Uh, it's I, I just it's hard for me to imagine like, hey, I'm in elementary school. You know, what's the career path that you would like to do? You know, the teacher asks you and it's like, I want to be a physical therapist. Usually that's not the first thing that usually pops up. Uh, so talk yeah. to me about, you know, when you sort of realize you know, when you want to go down this route of, you know, pain relief and, and physical therapy as a profession? I think there were two, there was always two events that I always talk about in my life. One of them actually was when I was really young, when I was in sixth grade, I was a very, very large kid, if you will. My dad fed me really, really well. And I was always the kid that kind of played basketball and played sports, but I was never the fastest, right? And, I think a lot of kids around me are like, oh, yeah, you just made the team because your bas- your dad's involved in basketball. So I they got to a point where I just cracked. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to open up this thing called the encyclopedia. And I'm going to start looking sure. up nutrition and exercise. And I got floored with it. I lost you know 20-something pounds. I became really, really fast. I, and I, it, it led me to playing four sports in, in high school. And then at some point, I became you – know, I did personal training. And then at some point then – I decided, hey, like I really like helping people and I'm going to pursue physical therapy. So that was just one big event where I guess a lot of ridicule and a lot of my stubbornness kind of led me down a path of like being really crazy for fitness and exercise. And then the the second event was when I was um, 18 years old and my dad was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And um, that was a really big emotional hit to not just my family, but also to myself. So I really looked up to my dad. My dad gave me everything I wanted in life, like you know, a good life. Um, I guess uh, the ability to play basketball and play sports, he showed me so many things in life and I was going to lose him at the age of 19. So seeing him, uh, you know, go down a route where he like, lost weight, he lost all his strength and he ended up uh, passing away April 7, 2008. Um, I had to get him off the couch. I had to get him out of bed, you know, and, and I saw how his body weakened over time and I didn't want that for other other families, right? That really hit me in the face where I was like, you know what? Like I have a, a sense of wanting to keep my body healthier, wanting to be an example to my family, but also wanting to help other, you know, moms, dads, people that don't really know how to take care of their health, right? And I, that's why I'm so big on proactivity because I want to not have other people experience that type of casualty or tragedy in the family. So that was a big one with just like helping my dad get, you know, out of bed and helping get changed. It was just like a really big emotional thing that said, Hey, I want to, I want to help more people and I want to do this for the long term." Uh, I guess for just some background information, like when I met Jason, uh, we actually played together as teammates in our senior year. So I don't know if I necessarily saw you at the sixth grade stage of, you know, Jason wants, mm-hmm. you know, life. Um, and I do know that, you know, obviously it's, it was really sad when you, you know, your dad passing away, you know, he's a guy that I remember had changed a lot of lives, right? Through basketball, mm-hmm. through coaching. Uh, and so I just wanted to let people know that like your dad was someone who was really impactful to the Asian American community, uh, San Francisco Asian American community, as well as the basketball community as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely 
uh, a really great guy and someone who changed a lot of lives. Uh, one thing oh, I do sure. want to kind of talk about is, uh, you know, you talked about how, you know, when your dad was going through kind of the recovery period, having trouble, you know, from, you know, getting off the couch. I feel like for a lot of, you know, older Asian parents or maybe just older uh, parents in general or older people in general, uh, how do you get them, right, to be proactive? Like, let's say, for example, if they're not able at that proactive stage when they're younger to, you know, do all these different types of preventative activities, as well as, uh, you know, just not having the knowledge, right, before, right? Like, maybe it's not within those uh, types of communities to know about all these uh, best practices, like, how do you address, you know, the older generation, you know, uh, given that they don't have that proactive background? I'll definitely say there's there's two points I want to hit on. It's like one, it's it's never too late to start. That's one. And then number two, it's you got to have a deeper sense of why. Because I think that many people, including yourself and may, many people around you, maybe older individuals, have a good sense of what to do. It's like, hey, just get off your butt and just go walk, right? Uh, you can know how to do it as well. So you can kind of know like how to do a squat, how to do certain exercises. You kind of know the benefits, but you don't have a deep sense of why. And what I tell people is like, hey, if you don't have a deep sense of why you're doing things, then you can know the how and the what, but it, it's to no avail. Like you're not really going to use the tools. So, you know, what are my deep sense of why? And I tell my clients and I tell people on social media all the time, what are my deep senses of why I... I work out so hard and I keep my body healthy is because I always think of my son and I always think of my, my wife. I always think of the people that will depend on me. And I think if people lack that sense of why, and you should read the book, Simon Sinek, Know Your Why, if you, if you haven't read it. I have, and yeah. It, 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 it's a great and book. And it goes through just peeling the layers of the onion. Like you might have a superficial word. Why do you want to get in shape? Yeah. Uh, it's because I want to look better. Okay, why do you want to look better? Because I want to feel more confident. Why do you want to feel more confident? Because like, because like you know my, my quality of life depends on it. And I... You know, I want to, I want to be an example to people. I want to help and contribute more to the needs of others. You're just peeling layers of the onion. If you don't know that why, it's really hard. So for the older generation, having that sense of, hey, I want to be there for my grandchildren. I want to be there. Uh, and I, I don't want to be like somebody that's sidelined as my kids are, you know, doing all these things with their kids, right? And it's just like having that sense of why. And lastly, you know, it's really hard to motivate yourself. So I don't depend on motivation. I depend on like being driven. Being driven is... You, you got to know it's it's not it's never too late to start. They, there's a lot of research out there saying hey, if you never worked out your entire life, but you start weight training at the age of 50, it can extend your life by like eight to 10 years starting at the age of 50. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Right. Even if you ate bad and just, you just like sat on a couch all day, you could start at 50, you could start at 60 and it can still extend your life eight to 10 years by way of getting on a consistent exercise program. So it, it's honestly never too late to start. It's never you should never feel embarrassed to like get in the gym or start moving. Don't look at your, you know, don't, don't judge yourself for like, Hey, I could have done this. I couldn't have done that. Just stay in the present and start, just put your foot on a damn starting line and actually just start moving. And uh, if you need help with that, obviously that's where me and other health professionals come to play. I think one of the amazing things is how malleable our bodies are, right. And adaptable um, to any sort of situation, right. Like just knowing that eight to 10 years, right. Can your life can be extended just by you know, starting even later in life, right? That's pretty amazing. Uh, but I, and I also think that for an older generation, part of it is also how do you deal with stubbornness, right? Like, and it kind of goes back to your, you know, uh, comment about why, right? Like the stubbornness and the why mm -hmm. 
like those are kind of uh, two opposing forces, right? That like, mm-hmm. in order to, I'm assuming like to help your clients if they're really stubborn or if it's like saying, hey, maybe someone's, you know, wife uh, is trying to get them to go to PT, but they won't go, right? Even though they know they recognize the why, but they don't feel it, right? It's really a personal decision, uh, even with, you know, outside factors, you know, attempting to influence them on like what the best course of action is. You're, you're totally right in so many ends, because there's a lot of these uh, cultural aspects of like, you know, Asian parents being very, very stubborn. It's like kind of a, it's a stereotype, but it's actually really true. You like go to like 80% of Asian parents and they're going to be like, hey, get them to exercise. And they're like, ah, I don't need to do that. I don't need to go right, to the doctor, right. blah, 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 all those things. And, um, you know, that's where that sense of why comes into play because you can't get them to just exercise. You can't force them, like, like pull their teeth to get them to exercise. You're just, that's going to be a losing battle. But you get them to understand that deep sense of why. Hey, you have a two-year-old granddaughter, right? It's like, hey, how, well, how do you want to feel in 10 years when, when she's moving faster and you're getting slower, it's like, where do you want to be in 10 years, right? And you just kind of future pace that. I do that all the time with my clients is future pace and paint that picture of where you want to be. Sometimes they, they're they just looking at things like tunnel vision, what's right. directly in their face, but they're not looking at the long-term game of like, okay, do you want to be debilitated? Do you want to be in a wheelchair when you're 10, 20 years from now? Or do you want to have a fulfilling life where you can still travel, you can still enjoy life um, and get the most out of life, right? Because we only have one life and you right. only have one body, so you might as well take care of it now. And um uh, you know, that's, that's where like the emotional aspects, cultural aspects, you got to like feed into that. Last thing I'll say is like, you know, the participation of friends and family, you don't have support. If you can have a physical therapist, but I'm just meeting that person for the first time. So they don't have a relationship with me. They have a relationship with their, their son, their daughter, their granddaughter. So having family participation is, is really, really important in my opinion. So if you have like a, somebody that's older than you that you really want to take care of, you got to put in some of your mental and physical efforts to give them those reminders, give them that accountability, right? Otherwise, then they're kind of just on a deserted island by themselves and they're going to fall, you know, they're going to get demotivated and eventually not use the tools that we give them. Essentially, what it sounds like is, I know you mentioned like, you know, being driven and having that why. And I also think that having a system, right? Like trying to systematize uh, ways that they, you know, can't fall off of like, you know, if they're trying to commit to something, uh, there has to be an accountability system, you know, for them, whether it's like, you know, you're painting a picture of like, this potentially could be a future that you may not want, right? Uh, to even like, mm-hmm. hey, we're, you know, you set up a routine, if you don't show up to these routines, right? Or like, sorry, I shouldn't say routines, you don't show up to, let's say your PT sessions and things like that, like, uh, how detrimental, you know, that is. So uh, it's cool that like, you talked about, like, the you know, the, the fam, not the family system, but friends and family, um, as well as, you know, the why, and I think all those things are, you know, connected together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go over, you know, some of the common in like the most common injuries, uh, that you typically see, like when people are like, Hey, like I need to see a physical therapist. Like what are the most common things that you receive, like inquiries that you receive about, um, about pain. Yeah. So I, I have a lot, a lot of clients and most of my clients deal with more so chronic pain. So if you don't know the difference between like acute pain versus chronic, acute is like your classic ankle sprain. You just heard it. It's the first time that you did it. There's actual swelling. First two to seven days is pretty tough because there's actual damage to the tissues. 
I deal a lot with clients and families that have chronic pain. Chronic pain is anything that extends beyond three to six months. So sometimes the tissues at that moment in time have actually healed, but there's a lot of other psychosocial factors like they have a fear of movement now, or they feel helpless about their situation, or maybe a healthcare practitioner practitioner has told them certain things about their body that didn't sit well with them that causes a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of the brain and the psychosocial factors plays into the pain experience. And that's where chronic pain does get kind of complex, which you're juggling a bunch of different things. But I, yeah, I, I would definitely say that with regards to the people that I see, it's a lot of chronic neck pain. Classically, we're all working from home nowadays. Yeah. So it's a lot of neck issues upper back stiffness, shoulder stiffness, as a result of sometimes upper body, or sorry, like upper neck and cervical dysfunction, there's nerve roots that come out of the spine. So we commonly will see people with, um, you know, numbness in their hands, carpal tunnel, um, a lot of different ailments as a result of more so sedentary behavior since we're still dealing with this COVID era currently. And uh, people are sitting more nowadays. So like lower back pain, right? Hip soreness. A lot of stiffness as a result of lack of movement and lack of pushing their body. I would say those are some of the main things that I see currently. Got it. So it sounds like the chronic pain, like chronic. So correct me if I'm wrong. Chronic pain falls under, or like the neck pain, the numbness, the stiffness that kind of falls under chronic pain. Is that oftentimes like just long-term nagging injuries? Like what do do chronic? Does chronic pain ever change into acute pain? Like are they able to like kind of go from one category to the other? They're not mutually exclusive for sure. So somebody could have chronic low back pain. They've been dealing with it for years, but then they pick up a bag of garbage and all of a sudden they they pull their back, right? And now they're stuck in a big flare-up cycle for two to seven days where it takes a lot of time. So that's what we call acute on chronic. And neck neck and low back pain doesn't mean it's chronic, right? Some people could just, they, they get out of bed, they come up too quickly, and then they pull something in their neck. And that could be acute, relatively speaking. Um, but you know, as, as some people, it's like one in four people in the world that hurt themselves acutely often will fall into a chronic pain cycle because everybody deals with injuries differently. So you could sprain your ankle and you could be like, Hey, I'm just going to like walk it off and just like, you know, just wait for it to rest. And you start running again. Some people that have an ankle sprain could be like, Oh my gosh, it's the worst thing in the world. I can't work. They start thinking and thinking and thinking and bringing themselves down this negative rabbit hole cycle. And then all of a sudden they're experiencing chronic ankle pain because they think differently about themselves. They think that they're unable, they're fragile, right? And then again, those psychosocial factors really play into their perception of the pain. Their pain could be a lot. You guys have the same exact damage in your ankle, but yep. their perception of pain could be a lot higher. Got it. So it just becomes kind of this blocker where it's like, okay, if you're walking, maybe you're, you're really nervous about putting more weight onto something or you know doing a specific movement. Is that kind of where the psychological part of it comes in is just like the restriction of a specific movement that it seems like if that continues, right, then your body's going to adjust in a certain way that maybe has like an unnatural gait or an unnatural bend or rotation or something like that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, just to label it for specifically this podcast, like imagine if you hurt your knee, you hurt your knee, you know longer can go down the stairs you no longer can pick up your child you no longer can squat down and pick up something so as a result of that some of those psychosocial factors can play into it 
And like you said, improper gait, changes in movement pattern. After they hurt their knee, they don't want to bend their knee. So guess what? They have to find movements elsewhere. So they might find more movement in their lower back and their hips. So they're picking up stuff without bending their knee. And then they, and then they blow out their back. Right. So then it's just cascades where they're like, I'm going further down the rabbit cycle. Then they start to think, oh, it's my age. Oh, then they get an MRI and it's like, oh, it shows arthritis. Then they get really, really scared. So there's all these just branches of where your brain could go. Right. And the job of a good physical therapist is to teach you how to overcome that, not just by exercise, but educating the person and empowering the person to say, hey, you are able to move, but we have to do it in a very calculated way. Got it. I would say, so, you know, you just listed out a, you know, the most common kind of injuries uh, or you know, chronic or acute type of injuries that your clients uh, will, will bring to you. What are the ways that you, especially during a pandemic, right? Because uh, you did mention that a lot of the, the stuff like neck pain, shoulder, you know, numbness in certain areas and stiffness, those are, you know, largely due to an increased sedentary lifestyle. So what mm-hmm. are things that, you know, you tell your clients that don't necessarily, let's say, have weights, right? Like they don't have like a full gym or something like that, uh, whether it's due to space or cost or things like that. What are, you know, some exercises and remedies that you tell your clients from both, you know, physical perspective, but also like a psychological perspective to make sure that they're on track to recovery? Yeah, I think that when people see like my Yelp page or social media, they'll see this guy that like is always in tank tops that has decent musculature i would say and they're like well well like you're lifting heavy weights i can't do that right and that's just a belief system to be honest right there's plenty of the clients that i've had that even female clients that their perception is i shouldn't lift heavy weights and then you get them to lift like 200 pounds off the floor and they could do it like my wife prior to pregnancy was able to lift 225 off the floor right and she's 105 pounds so she lift twice her body weight and so all these different perceptions of you know my body's unable you know, my, I'm, for, I'm in my 40s. And just, just think of it this way. Uh, we're all under subjection of gravity. And gravity goes straight down. So gravity in itself is a force. If you lift your hands in the air like this, you're lifting up against gravity. You're still strengthening your body. So just starting off with gravity-weighted squats. You know, going to – don't do a full push-up right now. Maybe you can't perceive that you can do a full push-up. Great. Get to the wall right now. Put your hands on the wall and do a wall push-up. Can you do that? Great. Then you could progress from there. Once you feel like your body's able, then hopefully start snowballing in the right direction where you have gravity, you know, you can do body weight exercises, you can do gentle stretches. And if you don't have weights, just find things that are conveniently in the house. I have a bottle of water right here that's two pounds, like a hydro flask, and that's two pounds of weight. You can lift that up and down. You can strengthen your shoulder and do lateral and front raises. You can find easily household items, fill up a bunch of books inside a suitcase and then lift the suitcase up and down so get get a little bit creative with even though you can't afford weights or you don't want to get weights it doesn't matter you can always get movement in that's that's the great thing about exercise exercise to me is an art you can do it anywhere i can think of a million exercises to do seated a million exercises to do lying on the ground and you know that that's that's what i would say to people it's like exercise is legit for everybody even if you're on your last last breath, you know, on your, on your bed, you can still do exercises in bed. And, uh, that's all I got to say about exercise. It's great. You know, exercise is the best medicine in the world. Very true. Uh, recently for me, I have been doing bouldering. Um, and so that's been a great, I would say upper half of the body exercise with some flexibility involved, right. With the, the lower body stuff. 
at the hips. Yep. I, you know, when I was in college, I kind of had this, uh, not really fear, but kind of an aversion to like lifting weights. Like my biggest fear was like, all right, you know, when you're in college or or high school, there's this kind of perception that, oh, if I lift weights, I'm going to get really buff or I'm going to get really swole. And then, you know, sometimes I would see people that would only lift weights just, you know, on their upper body and then they have chicken legs. Right. And just like the biggest fear for me was just like the moment you start bulking up, like that's a permanent change to your body. And it's like you have to keep that up and you have to dedicate like your entire life to keeping that up because I'm assuming what happens is let's say you work out, you, you, you get really big over the course of two to three years and then you stop for whatever reason, your lifestyle changes that's really hard to, to put back on, right? Like, it's just like the muscle's just not there anymore, but you've also expanded, you know, the skin and stuff like that. Uh, so I found that, you know, obviously doing sports or, you know, more calisthenic or just more dynamic exercises with body weights and stuff like that, uh, or using your own body as a weight, um, it just really appealed to me uh, as someone who wanted to still stay limber, like, Maybe it's a, just an older way of thinking of like, hey, I'd like to be able to, you know, pick something off the floor without, you know, hurting my back. It's not necessarily like, oh, I need to show how muscular I am, uh, but just, you know, kind of trying to just withstand the forces of everyday life and trying to make sure that uh, I don't suffer any sort of chronic or acute pain. Definitely. I mean, you got to find everybody in life needs to just find an activity that they like to do and that they can be consistent with. So whether that's yoga, Pilates, basketball, weight training, it does not matter really as long as you find something that you like that you can stay consistent with that involves movement, getting your heart rate up, right? But at the same time, the reason why I still feel that most people can still benefit from a little bit of weight training, regardless if they don't want to lift 400 pounds off the floor, is think of it this way. Your classic mom that just gives birth, her body has gone through a lot of trauma after giving birth. And their goal is just to get their 10-pound baby off the floor, right? And just pick right. them up. However, it's like, oh, my, I feel low back pain when I lift my 10-pound baby off the floor. Cool. Now, take that data and just say, well, relatively speaking, if I can put a 20-pound dumbbell in your hand and you can lift that 10 pounds off the floor, does that make it easier for you to lift your baby? Clearly, that's a rhetorical question. You can do that right. and more. So your ability to do things with less pain, without the chances of a flare-up, without pulling your back, becomes much less probable if you build the capacity to do things. And I will say, like it's like the compound interest that you said. If you build now while you're young, then it compounds over time. You don't have to worry as much about your nest egg later on. Same thing goes. Right. You can build up more strength and more speed and flexibility and all these different aspects of health and fitness in your life while you're young. And when you get older... You will have more muscle to spare, if you will, um, right. into your later years and you experience less injuries and you'll be more able to do things in life. Got it. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, right, in terms of answering my question about uh, the different types of activities like that people can do to, uh, I guess, cure, not cure, but just to remedy some of the like the stiffness or like the everyday kind of pandemic type of issues. Talk to me about the, I guess, mental side of it, right? Like, cause I know you mentioned like the physical side of it and that seems really great. Like if you were to implement like a system, let's say like, Hey, like, you know, grab some books, right. Put it in a backpack, you know, walk up and down the stairs, make sure you go on walks. But before you even get to that point, like 
how do you make sure, how, what are some of the methods that you use to ensure that like, hey, you know, like painting the picture, right? Like you were talking about, maybe it's not like, hey, do you want to be able to lift your, you know, your child or, you know, be able to, uh, I don't know if you're a grandparent, right? Like those are different images and stories that you would probably use. So for people who are, you know, younger, but, you know, still suffering from physical ailments, uh, what's that picture? What's the picture that you paint? Um, to really convince them to say like, hey, you should be on this physical therapy kind of system? I think it's not, for some people, it depends on their, it depends on their personality because sometimes future pacing and saying, hey, do you want a positive future or a negative future? Some people don't really think that way. There's plenty of people that just live in the present and just be like, I know I'm just living my life now. So I think that for those people that really can't capture the emotional aspects that come with like a better vision or a better future, I just say, hey, I mean, you, you got to know you have a, you need to have a predictable structured system. You need to have, you know, I, I always tell people you, you can have a long term. You have like these long term bundles where it's like three days a week of exercise and you have like that bundle. And they also have like your short term bundle, which is like, hey, this is these are little things that you could do throughout the day. You can envelope it into your daily life and actually build. I legit build a habits course on this specifically talking about okay. the science of habits, how to build more movement into your life. So just one thing that just to enlighten people, I'm like, hey, you need to know, you need to have a trigger, you need to have an action and a reward. So the trigger is, let's say my, your, classically your phone goes off, it vibrates on your desk. Your action right. after you hear that certain vibration pattern is, I'm going to do these certain exercises for my neck and back, just two minutes. And the reward is you feel better. And so that feeds right. into itself. And if you can understand how habits plays into it or just interweaving things. So like, even if you're busy, at least it's automated into your life. So that way, you know that if you're going to be sitting for another 20, 30 years, you better be able to supply enough movement to counteract all that sitting stress or lack of stress. Got it. Do you have any, I know you talked about all the different courses, you know, that you offer, like the habit building ones, like, you know, where does the accountability factor, you know, kind of come in uh, to make sure that your clients actually do go through with the, the program. Uh, so I think you kind of touched upon it a little bit, but I wanted to, want you to explain a little bit more about like how you can make sure that they're accountable uh, for staying on a plan that you put them on. Accountability partners are huge. So there, there's, there's many ways to have accountability. One is you can write it in yourself, right? You can reward yourself after doing five sets of exercises, right? You stay consistent for five days, you give yourself ice cream on the weekend, right? So you're keeping yourself accountable. And you can also, there's many things. You can do paper journals. You can write it out and be like, here's the check mark. The action of checking mark is like keeping yourself accountable. You can download apps, plenty of workout apps out there. So that's you intrinsically keeping yourself accountable. Other things are if you need somebody, grab your girlfriend, grab your spouse, grab your kids, grab friends around you that have similar goals to you and grab an accountability partner, create a contract with each other and say, hey, this is what we're going to do every single day. And we're going to log it. We're going to text each other. We're going to like screenshot our, our, our fitness watches. That, that, that's, that's also accountability. And then lastly, is like you can obviously hire us, right? <laughs> and have an accountability partner where you hire somebody. You're putting actual dollars towards spending towards somebody. So that, that in itself, you're investing in your health. You're actually giving somebody an investment so that they're able to keep you accountable and give you a structured plan. So three types of accountability right there. I would say, at least maybe for me, the money part, right, is the strongest one, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you actually feel, you want people to feel the pain of losing something. 
I've heard of like different gyms where it would be like, hey, you know, you pay X amount to your, you know, your gym, not your gym membership, but whoever your personal trainer is, mm -hmm. right? And then, you know, if you complete, you know, all the courses or you show up, they give you, you know, some of that money back yep. right, as an accountability uh, form. So definitely a big fan of the money part, but I can also see how like there are also social um, accountability partners as well that can also work, obviously, depending on if you're in a budget, mm -hmm. but it just sounds like there has to be something that you can lose, right? That you got to feel the sting if you don't accomplish it. Otherwise, like, you know, there's no consequences for you yeah. if you don't actually do it. Yeah, that'd be the two bundles, right? So you have, it, it's same like when we were, when we were kids and you have mom and dad, right? There's negative reinforcement where they say, you got to, you got to put your nose at the wall for 30 minutes if you do X, Y, Z. Yeah. But if you get good grades and you get an A plus here, all right, we got to take you to Chuck E. Cheese, right? So it, we're, we're right. humans by, by nature. So we're 40, 40, 50 years of age, even if you're older, you still yield to positive negative reinforcement. So negative reinforcement, you know, I got to give my money to a charity that I don't like, right? Or like positive reinforcement yeah. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, I get to use this money towards taking a vacation for my kids. It's like, then- then it's like, yeah, you are putting your money where your mouth is. And that investment is like, yeah, you're, you're actually investing time, but also energy and resources towards it. And that, that's where, that's where big changes can happen. Got it. Uh, when people see a physical therapist, uh, talk to me about what the common mistakes people make, uh, after let's say, you know, they see a physical therapist, they go through the training. Uh, and then after that, right. Like, what do people, what do people commonly mistake for? Like, do they just like continue to fall off the plan? Right. Like what are some of those things that you see where it's like, there's like a relapse in, in something after they've completed the plan? Yeah. They, for some it's, well, I mean, I guess the biggest one is they, they fall off their exercise plan, but sometimes okay. falling off their exercise plan is not always their fault because I always tell people all the time humans will always fall towards the path of least resistance. So there's more resistance to picking up a dumbbell. There's less resistance to watching Netflix, right? So there's always that, right. that sense of comfort. I would say it's not always their fault because if the physical therapist or the healthcare practitioner is not setting the example, but is not telling them the long-term plan of what they need to do after, and it's simply just the relationship of like authority figure and patient which is I give you the exercises, you do it, done. And then after you're done, good, on to the next one. I think a good physical therapist should really develop a good relationship with the person and actually become their friend. And actually, because if you don't have good rapport, a good relationship, then the compliance throughout the plan may not work. But even afterwards, it's like, well, why, why do I respect this person? You know, why, why, do I why, why should I do any of this? Because you're not giving them a stronger perspective of like why they need to do it after. So it always goes back to the sense of why. Right. You should continue after so you don't need to see me again. But you also don't want to see me again because therefore you're going to be get pulled out of your job. You can't work. You're going to feel less able. There's all these other you know X, Y, Z reasons on why you should continue. So always have that deep sense of why. But I, like I said, it's not always the person's fault because we're always going to go towards a path of least resistance. And I think it's the physical therapist and the perspective that they give that ultimately will lead to better compliance long-term. Got it. You actually touch upon something that leads into my, my next question is like, what makes, what's the difference between a good physical therapist and a great physical therapist? I, 
I think all physical therapists think they're great, right? So everyone's going to be really biased. I like myself as a physical therapist. I'm very passionate about what I do. And I also consider myself a, a lifestyle physical therapist because I want to touch yeah. on the many points of, let's say, if Mike is my client, he has chronic neck pain. I want to be the therapist that tells you how to interweave exercise into your life and not just give you a set of 10 exercises and say, hey, you figure it out. I also want to be a physical therapist that develops relationships and says, hey, whenever you need me, feel free to let me know. You know, I give my clients my cell phone. I give my clients the ability to message me um, on my app that I currently have. And I think that sometimes physical therapists don't give enough communication, which is the accountability piece, right? I think also a good physical therapist should really teach people about the many aspects of wellness and wellness just covers basically mental biological and physical health it, it encompasses all aspects of health which is mike what is your sleep patterns how do you cope with stress what sort of foods do you eat because i think that if you don't address many aspects of health and although there may be legal reasons right if you're a physical therapist you work in a big corporate setting you might not be able to go through that I do run my own business where I can say, hey, let's like, let's address what, what's your, what's your nighttime ritual? You know, what do you do in the mornings? How do you cope with stress at work? Do you get up enough at work? And so you, you address so many aspects of health that really gives people a, a, a deeper sense of this is how I should take care of my body. It's not just a set of exercises or a physical therapist massaging me. There's many other aspects of health that I need to understand during the duration of the care that I have that client in front of me. And I think that's what defines a great physical therapist. Got it. Got it. I think I really like the aspect where you talk about it's less about the actual exercise itself, but more of, you know, addressing them as a human being, right? Addressing, you know, lifestyle, uh, how they, uh, the overall, sorry, the overall wellness of a person, like the health aspect of it. Uh, that's something that I really appreciated um, and from, a, from your specific answer, because, you know, you know, throughout this conversation so far, a lot of what has been resonating has been, you know, the psychological aspect of, uh, of wellness and just, uh, you know, putting, making sure that you put yourself or your clients on a path, uh, to overall success. It's not just about the exercises itself. Like that's obviously the technical side of it, but just, you know, like you said, also the reason why, mm -hmm. um, someone should continue and, uh, to get healthy and recover. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I'm really big on is just the words that we use with our clients. So, you know, certain physical therapists or, or, or even doctors will, will are not very careful with their words. So you get an MRI and just like, hey, Mike, you have degenerated disc disease in your neck and back. I, I can only fathom if you're not in the healthcare system, how that would make you feel. Right. And it's just like, OK, right. you're done. See me next week. Bye. And then it's just like, well, what, what the, you know, what is, what is Mike thinking after you tell him that information, right? Is that you're not telling them anything in regards to education, um, you know, and you, you come back to me in the clinic. And then if I was a physical therapist, say like, Hey, Hey, how's your, how's your neck? How's your back? And it's like, it seems very impersonal when I hear that. I'd rather Mike come in and be like, Hey Mike, how's, how are you? You know, how are you, how are you coping? How are you coping with, you know, the exercise I gave you? I think it's more like you're addressing the person instead of treating people like a body, like a, like a body part. And I think that's a big thing that I want to change in our healthcare system too. Totally makes sense. I definitely think I see that more with uh, independent, 
like doctors in general. So for example, like I go to a pretty small dentist in the mission. He maybe only has like two chairs available. He runs his own business. And, you know, it, it's a space for me to ask questions too. Like, hey, like when I'm taking care of my teeth, right? It's like, you know, what kinds of food should I eat? Or it's like, hey, I read about this thing, like where you can use like baking soda and, and water to like lower the pH level uh, or something mm. like that. And she's like, oh, that's a good substitute for, you know, toothpaste or something like that. So the ability, I think, to have a conversation with your, you know, your doctor or someone in the medical profession, I think is super important, not only because like you get to obviously have a new type of uh, friend or a relationship, mm -hmm. but also, you know, there's a human aspect to every sort of uh, exchange that we do. Uh, there are times we don't even talk about dentistry, right? Or like teeth, like we'll just ask like, how's your mom? Mm -hmm. How's your dad, right? Like essentially they become part of your community, mm -hmm. um, your family, your social support network. Uh, so that's something that I think is a real benefit of, you know, small businesses, especially from a medical uh, practitioner perspective. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I mean, it, it's less it's less transactional, it's more relational, um, you know, transactions regarding insurance and how much how much how many visits Mike can get, you know, out of his out of his insurance. Right. I think that's in all, in, all, in all fairness, every business needs revenue in order to uphold the right. business. But at the same time, I think uh, me as a healthcare practitioner, there's a reason why I quit corporate, which was I wanted to develop stronger relationships with my clients. I wanted to create the rules around all aspects of wellness that I wanted to do for my clients. And I think that has given a lot of my clients much better quality of care, different perspective on what healthcare should be. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, corporate physical therapy for a bit, just because, you know, like, obviously I know you're big on social media, right? You run your own page and there's a very approachable and accessible, you know, view to physical therapy. Uh, but from a corporate perspective, like what did you learn from the corporate side of things that you've taken to your practice? And what are the things that you have uh, changed from since, you know, leaving, or how have you changed since leaving the corporate side of physical therapy? Yeah, um, it doesn't, it's not like I want to throw anything under the bus, but obviously when you quit a certain job or you change transition, there's obviously maybe a lack of satisfaction in your own job, or there's certain as aspects of ethics and regulations that you, you don't agree with, right? It, or it could be a mixture of those things. You're, or you're underpaid, right? You're too stressed. Right. So my honest perspective is like, yeah, seeing, you know, seeing 12 to 16 patients a day was just something I couldn't do long-term. I did not want to get to a point where I was just so exhausted that I didn't want to do my job. I didn't want to get tired of my job. I really loved my job. And I felt like five years down the road, I might get tired of it. I might lose the passion on helping people. And it may just be me collecting a paycheck, like maybe some of the PTs that I did work with before, you know, and in all fairness, it's part of the system in which people are in, like there may be great physical therapists, but it's just more the system, right? So it's like, for, you know, forcing a client in, forcing a client in for a 20 minute session and you hardly give them the quality of care that they need. And that's kind of what happened at times. You know, I had a little break in my schedule and all of a sudden, boom, something pops up, Sarah Smith. And Sarah Smith gets on my schedule. I'm like, you know, I'm rushing to like get her documentation in right. and trying to, you know, get as many things as I can, but I can't even afford to give her the care she needs, right? It's just like assessment, one minute of education. Here's two exercises. All right, see me in two weeks. And that's another thing. 
I was so the the census and the census of how many clients we have to see per day, I couldn't see my client in time. So I would see my client, oh, I don't have any gaps in my schedule. Maybe I'll see you in like three to four weeks. Is that cool? And then you're like, oh, like I have to see you in three to four weeks. Well, what am I going to do between now and then? So it was all these like right. gaps in care that I didn't want. And, you know, uh, at the same time, I didn't want to be subjected to, I guess, a doctor telling me what I need to do all the time, like getting the getting the referral note, this is what you need to X, Y, Z. I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to just have somebody come directly to me via what we call direct access, which is allowed in 48 out of the 50 states. Somebody can come to me directly without a doctor, without a doctor's referral note, and to say, hey, I want to see the physical therapist directly. They talk to me directly. It's more relational. relational. It is less about having to go through these different loops in order to get to me. Um, and that also just creates a better experience for the patient as well. Got it. Would you say that, you know, you're, since you're seeing so many clients, was the main goal, right, of, let's say, a typical corporate organization, it's more about the quotas, like how many people can we sort of see, right, checkpoint, like, you know, they saw them, okay, they had this issue, checkbox, right, another thing, checkbox, okay, how many of your, it's almost like, because I'm a marketer, yeah. so we think about things from, like how many people did we see or not how many people we see, how many impressions did we serve? How many people clicked on something? Yep. How many people, you know, converted basically as they're going down this funnel of, you know, stages of recovery. Um, is it just more like evaluating, you know, how many have passed certain, you know, stages and that's without any of the context involved in terms of how all that stuff structured. It is. It, it's, it's, it's totally corporate and all about the numbers to some extent. Right. And, I, I prided myself on saying my team and the way I do things. Because I, I run an online program uh, called the Pain Free Academy, but I also have in-person care. And I, I tell people we're not held to productivity standards, so we're not we're not rushing you out. We're not we're not seeing a hundred patients a day. We're just here to treat you, right? So that aspect of I don't know how many clients can we see at a certain time. Uh, how many visits can we get out of this one person? Oh, the average person was seen eight to 10 times. Oh, that's less than the hospital down the street. So how can we get that number up? So there's those that those numbers that we revisited every single week during our weekly meetings. It wasn't about how can we serve Mike and how can we serve the people better and get better outcomes? It was more like, how can we get our numbers up? How can we get our rankings up in California? And I don't know. I mean, to, to an emotional degree, I, I didn't agree with that. So I don't do those numbers with my, my clients. I'm just like, hey, I just want to get my clients the best results that they can. You know, if they, if, they, if they like our care, you know, they can leave us a review and, you know, and go from there and then we can continue to serve more people. It was more about the people and less about the transactions and cost per lead and how, what we can build for their right. insurance. Did that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, given that you are, you know, a small business, like I'm sure there's still things that you take into consideration mm -hmm. in terms of how you're measuring your own practices, success and, you know, areas for growth, uh, and improvement and things that you're doing well, like, how do you identify what those things are? Like, I think you mentioned like, you know, how, you know, great Yelp reviews, how many people, you know, tell, you know, their friends and family about your practice through word of mouth. Talk to me a little bit about uh, how you measure success, not only just from a quantitative perspective, uh, but also qualitatively as well. Qualitatively speaking, when, 
when you see that, for example, like if I'm running advertisements, right, and that, that that's, the, that's the numbers that you know, clicks, impressions, cost per lead, all those things. And I, I do run some ads on, on certain places. But when you're seeing that you're getting certain people to like get onto your email list or follow you, those are all great statistics to keep in mind because like, oh, a certain amount of followers will convert into a client. But then when you see that you go to your client and they're texting you and they're saying, hey, I'm sending you like two different people that I know and it's just referral based. Those are also numbers to say, hey, we're doing something right. People are actually saying, hey, Dr. J or the team is is getting us results. It, it, it was more about the relationship and the experience that they saw that, that got us those clients. So those numbers are being tracked as well. How many referrals do we get? What are the positive outcomes? How many people actually met their goal versus, you know, they met like 75% of their goal. So we still kind of keep and track some of those measurements and statistics in order to meet up with our team weekly and say, hey, how can we improve the patient experience? Got it. That's actually a really good balance between, obviously, there's the marketing side, which is more quantitative, but then also like measuring the patient experience as qualitative. So uh it seems like it's a good balance that you kind of switch modes, you know, depending on, you know, how you're looking at the data, the data, or like you're looking at the patient kind of experience. So I, that's something that I do uh, really appreciate about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the aspects of business as well. I mean, you have marketing, which you talk about, like, how can you market yourself better? Sales, obviously track those numbers a bit. Otherwise, well, can't be measured, can't be managed. Your business will implode. Um, yeah. Operations to make my job easier with, you know, my assistants and team that helps me. But yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is like, I always tell my team is like, hey, I can I can let marketing go. I can let certain things go. Uh, my sales can even go down. But the most important part is fulfillment. And fulfillment is fulfilling the needs of the client. So how can we improve that patient, whether they're seeing me in person or online? How can we improve that experience? Can we interview them and see, hey, what, you know, what, what got you to the success that you saw with working with Dr. J, for example. Um, when you're interviewing them and really taking time to like understand their needs, then you can therefore they, they, you can therefore build out a better plan or modify things about your program to best fit the needs of your future clients. Makes sense. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, because you talked about starting your own business and I'm sure there's probably a ton of trials and tribulations along with that, like building up a client list and stuff like that. So talk to me a little bit about that experience. Like once you decide to leave corporate, um, knowing that you're going to start your own business, assemble the team that you have uh, and build a client list, like walk me through that experience a little bit. The experience is, the experience is troubling. I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely scary. It's you just jumping off of a diving board and not expecting like, you know, whether it's going to be water or ice down there. So, you know, I, I think what's this, it's, What's the statistics? Eighty-five uh, percent of small businesses implode after two years, right? So you're you're expecting and hoping that you're going to be the fifteen percent. And I started my business eight months before COVID, right? So that's when I started it. My business didn't really start to get off the ground until December of two thousand nineteen, and then all of a sudden COVID hit. So three months later, COVID hit, and it's just like you're trying to build up a presence, you're trying to get clients, and all of a sudden now everyone's scared. Everyone's scared for their life, and you know, that was a really scary experience for me. I, I got borderline depressed from just thinking that I, I started something during a really troubling time. You know, it's like, it's like entering to the stock market and all of a sudden your stocks just start going down, right? It's exactly that type of experience. But you learned that the, 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 thing about, the thing about it is like, if you 
if you just keep going, it doesn't matter how many trials you hit. It's, it's about overcoming that adversary, and that's what defines resilience. So when you define resilience, you're just saying, hey, I mean, it doesn't matter. If you have a certain vision, if you have a certain sense of why you started your business, you will get through. Like it's, it's for sure 100% if you don't give up and you just keep trialing things, you will learn from those experiences, you will fail forward and you'll get there. And I would say I, you know, you, you're, you're always wanting your business to improve. And I, I think I've touched a lot of lives with the work that I've done. But, you know, my job's not done yet, even though I've gotten through that trial and I'm still hitting trials and I'm still learning from those trials. It's it's all about having a sense of purpose and having a sense of giving. I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, the biggest and the most successful entrepreneurs, people might perceive them as like these selfish guys that just make a lot of money. But those are some of the most giving and most sacrificial people in the world. You know, they gave up their time and their energy towards making the world a better place. And. That's what I'm really excited to do, you know, is, is to make, you know, for, for everybody in the world is to make chronic pain as, as easy and simple as like brushing your teeth. Like that's, that's one of my mission statements is, is make it so easy that anybody can just click a button and it's just like, you know, you can, you can get there. You can overcome chronic pain if you can, if you want to. Makes sense. Uh, building a scalable system is probably really hard. Uh, I think something that I really do appreciate is that you are building it through digital means um as well like whether it's through an app having different uh courses paid courses and also just giving out free knowledge on, on social media as well so i can see how all those things you know kind of align with uh you know the mission statement of having everyone live a pain-free life as easy as possible mm -hmm. when you were starting your business and you because you said it was eight months before the pandemic uh, did you start to see clients more of your clients to kind of come in during covid um, or is it like a lot of that stuff was just like a slow burn going through those first eight months in terms of just like a drip of a slow drip of clients, but nothing really picking up until COVID. It was definitely, it was definitely a slow drip of clients. I think certain people that I told that I said, Hey, I'm starting this social media page. It's called Flex with Dr. J. Then they started telling their friends, like some of my best friends told their friends and I, I gathered a decent following pretty early, but even with the following, you know, that followings don't always like not, not everyone sees you as a solution yet until you really build authority. So as I started to get more value, I saw a good amount of clients come in like December, January, February, and I was like really doing a lot of great things for them. And then COVID hit and like, you know, to be honest, like a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people got really scared of even going anywhere. So I lost 80% of the clients I was seeing in person. I saw, I saw my revenue drop tremendously and I was like, you know what, I might need to return to my old job or like, you know, I might need to do something else because, you know, this doesn't look good. But, you know, people like my sister who runs her own business for seven years and many other people, they, they encouraged me to say, hey, AJ, you're, you know, you're good at what you do. You, I know that you're doing really impactful things for people. So I stuck it out, you know, networking, just trying hard to give more value. And March, sure, like February, March, didn't really get a lot of clients, but April and, and May, it's like, after people transitioned into COVID and saw like, oh, I'm working from home. Oh, and now I need to take better care of my health. Then people started to see that aspect. And that's where things kind of took off after that. So maybe one to two months of like really dry spells. And then ultimately, then things kind of picked up after that. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like the, I think the month of March and April, 
a lot of fear, right, in kind of the overall marketplace and in society. Everyone, you know, there's mandates that say like, hey, you should shouldn't go out, right, yep. at all, um, unless you need to get groceries or things like that. Don't go in contact with people. I think those first one to two months were were very, you know, different times um, compared to like as we started to learn more information about COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something where I feel like uh, things started not to ease up, but I think it was more people got used to it, yeah. like you were saying. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit how you had to transition your business uh, to a more virtual facing one um, during the pandemic, uh, just because, you know, you said that you lost 80% of your in-person clients, right? What like going into COVID and then uh, to rebuild that during COVID. Talk to me a little bit about that process and that pivot uh, to, to adjust to the times. Yeah, so the pivot actually came even the pivot came well before COVID as well, where I started um, an online program called the Pain-Free Academy, I would say maybe even six months before COVID started. Um, and I got I just got inspired by a lot of these other fitness coaches and maybe uh, they're selling me some advertisements. And I actually invested a good amount of money to learn more about how to build out a more predictable online system where people got good results and you can see people at scale. So um, I started that well before, you know, February, March even happened. And when people started getting the COVID scare, but even then, you know, I, I lost revenue from both ends, whether it was online or in person, definitely in person, people were like, I am not coming to the gym for sure. And I was like, that's fine. No worries. Um, but then that, that kind of just, maybe if anything, that kind of forced me to say, well, if I can't do in person, I need to capitalize more on my online presence. Right. So that's where I just started just overloading people with even more value and, Kind of letting people know that that I have a that I have a solution, and it's a solution where it's more based on lifestyle and less about the traditional type of PT that was out there. Got it. I did want to ask, like, how the online course, like, and virtual courses differ than in person, right? Just because most people are probably not used to online specific courses, and particularly if they're paid, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, the types of experiences each person can kind of get from either being having the physical uh, meeting versus an online uh, specific course design for them. Yeah, I mean, in person, in person, maybe advantages is you're 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 seeing me in person. I'm a 3D object, right? You can actually see, and I can actually maybe even like take you through the gym and show you different things. So there there are benefits to in person, no doubt about it. There are, there are advantages to seeing me online, which is like people outside the state as well. So online, you do not have to travel anywhere. Um, I can see exactly what you do in your home. And I would say most people get pain in two places, right? At work or at home, right? So when, when that's an advantage, I can actually be seeing you in your home. You can be taking me through your home and be like, here's my equipment. This is what I do. And I can teach you how to interweave exercise into your daily life around your home. Right. So there, there's a lot of advantage to that. And then the online system, I guess the great thing is like uh, there, there is more like group support. So I have like a group program where people are kind of in the same boat. They have similar goals. There might be like a lot of moms and dads and they're in this together. And I think that's a great thing because one of the biggest things about chronic pain relief and having a positive outcome is actually having group supports right? group communities where people can bounce ideas off each other or when somebody's sinking, it's having a group that can actually pick them up versus, you know, in person, you honestly may be doing it alone. You might have your spouse and everything, but it's not like 
a group that where everybody has very similar pains, similar aspirations, similar psychosocial factors that we talked about last time. So I think there are some advantages to online and there are some advantages in person and, you know, physical, you, you don't have to be touched. I like that a lot of people are like, oh, manual therapy, manual therapy is huge in physical therapy, but online, you don't have that advantage of like touching somebody or patting them on the back or shaking their hand. But I think, you know, even some of the, my best friends and some of the clients that I've developed good relationships with, I have never met in person. And I kid you not, you know, like I have great clients that are all over my website that I have not met somebody from the UK. I haven't met my client from Japan. I haven't met my client from Illinois. And um, these are all lifelong relationships I built. Awesome. Uh, do you feel that this is something, I mean, obviously we're still in, you know, pandemic, uh, that you're going to continue to kind of grow, you know, internationally or uh, through that virtual side of things, right? It seems like that virtual side of things has like, really picked up uh, during the the pandemic. And I'm sure for a lot of businesses, anything virtual, right? Like mm -hmm. anyone can be reachable anywhere at this point in time. So it's, mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's gonna be something you're gonna continue to strongly invest in, you know, during, uh, during the pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you can build out like a robust program that right now my program used to be just one-to-one -one coaching. Now it's transitioned to like a mixture of one-to-one -one plus group consulting. Uh, and now, you know, there's a, you know, there, there's coursework. So there's things that you can do that provides the educational aspects. Like imagine if I just had the same talk about, hey, Mike, straighten up your posture. Hey, Bob, fix yeah. your posture. Right. And then you're just telling the same narrative over and over again. At some point, you're like, OK, well, my time is not being used wisely because I'm just saying the same narrative that I know will help all of them. But why not just put that in one module and just say, hey, everyone watch this module and just and just go with it. Right. So that's where like, you know, right. that's where emails kind of go out, you know, at a week by week to take people down a journey where they get from like point A, having a lot of debilitated pain and negative thoughts to now they're super confident and they're pain free. So we, yeah, as again, fulfillment is the biggest part of my business and that's what we focus on the most. And that's what we're building out right now. Got it. Uh, I do want to transition to the role of strength and mobility, yeah. uh, just cause from, from my understanding, right. There's obviously like static strength. Let's say if you're, you know, lifting a dumbbell, uh, or a barbell, like, you know, that's just one specific movement versus like, if you're doing like full kettlebell motion, right. That's more of like a dynamic, uh, fluid kind of strength. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about the role of, uh, strength, like say strength training and also mobility training, uh, when it comes to physical therapy, strength, strength, I mean, it's just work equals force times distance. So if you can move a certain weight or your own body weight over a certain distance, you're getting stronger. And then when it comes to mobility, mo mobility, just to give people definition, flexibility is just how far a certain joint can go, how far a certain muscle can be stretched versus mobility is combining flexibility and strength together, which is you need to be able to be strong within that range of motion. So Mike might be able to lift his arm overhead like this, but can he actually keep his arm overhead up there with a kettlebell with a 15 pound kettlebell in his hand, right? That that's the ter determination of he can flexibility wise get up there, but is, can he sus sustain that position? Cause you have good endurance and stability in that position so that he prevent injury from occurring. So that's like strength and mobility. And uh, I would say, Re rehabilitation plan wise people usually start off with just easy weights to like isolate certain muscles so like if it's like a bicep curl just to strengthen specifically isolate the bicep but bicep curl doesn't necessarily lead to 
I don't know, picking your child off the floor because that requires squat, then bend your elbows, then stand up from that. So it's a little bit more dynamic. And that's where when people's usual rehab program goes from like gentle stretches, get the body moving, especially for a novice, do some easy strength exercises to get their confidence up and to build strength in certain areas without risk of injury. Then afterwards, build in the function, right? So now we're actually mimicking picking up your child off the floor or we're mimicking swinging your golf club, right? Those are some of the more functional strength things that you were talking about. Like, yeah, kettlebells, more dynamic, more fluid, more multi-directional. But sometimes you need to stay in one plane first, then kind of transition out of that. So strength and mobility, hopefully that gives people a sense of, you know, mobility is not the same as flexibility. And then strength is like, strength and flexibility kind of marinate into mobility. Got it. Is there, I'm just still curious about the strength aspect. Like, okay, when would you tell your client, like, hey, we already need to focus on strength versus we need to focus on, you know, mobility. Um, And like, what are the use cases for that in terms of addressing I would say like whatever you deem as the common, you know, chronic or acute issues that you see, like how do you separate those out? And then eventually I'm assuming combine those, you know, later on. Yeah. Sometimes I think most people associate tightness that they feel or tension that they feel with a muscle or a joint being tight, but that's not always the case. So a lot of my clients, I will actually start them immediately on some form of strength exercise. So it's not always like, oh, get things moving, just stretch certain things, then transition to strength. Oftentimes it will, for me at least, I'm biased, but it will always be a mixture of strength and mobility right from the get-go. And sometimes I put them on a scale of 1 to 10. So 10 being they're hypermobile, they're very, very flexible already, but maybe they lack stability and they need to work on, on more so biasing towards strength. Then maybe you look at like a really big retired football player who has lost some strength, but they're just really stiff. They're a 300 pound dude. They're really stiff. So they need to bias themselves more towards mobility and flexibility. But you, you make that, you make that assessment based on the movement that you see. So when I see somebody move, I can tell where the restrictions lie. I can tell where they're lacking strength. You take them through certain tests to determine where on that scale that they need to bias themselves towards. So for me, like, the, the, the tightness, it's a, it's a myth to think that people, everybody that's tight, they need to get stretched out. You oftentimes will strengthen that area right away and you'll see how that like relaxes the musculature or it resets the nervous system. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's funny how the statistics show that physical therapists, only the 56% of physical therapists actually strength train or actually provide strength training. And I think that's preposterous. I think that most people should think strength is oftentimes the way to go. And, Mobility, again, is the mixture of strength and flexibility. So if you get people more mobile, they can get results pretty quickly. Got it. I think that makes sense. Um, I think I I noticed that before I started bouldering, and I've only been bouldering for maybe about almost a year or so, um, I would get more tired out, right? Uh, You know, just from certain types of activities. So let's say, for example, if I'm playing a pickup basketball game, right, and I uh, I wasn't bouldering before, my whole entire body would be really tired. Um, but now that like, you know, I've recently picked up playing basketball again, uh, after let's say a year of rock climbing or bouldering, I'm like, Hey, I don't feel as tired anymore. Right. Like it's not the recovery period. It's not as rough. Right. Because my body's already, you know, has gotten used to it. So I can definitely like see the benefits of strength plus mobility in Mm -hmm. terms of, uh, just overall, just, 
building up or just having less fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Just for everyday kind of life and just giving you more energy. Uh, so that is like a benefit that I, I've definitely seen from from doing more sure. strength oriented stuff. Yeah. There's more energy like uh, in your daily life. And capacity. Capacity is just your ability to like, you know, you have your 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 shoulder or your or your hips or your body is like an eight ounce glass, right? So filling up that eight ounce glass beyond the eight ounce glass, you try to put twelve ounces in an eight ounce glass, you're gonna overfill it, aka that results in a mess, results in an injury, results in a strain of a muscle. But if you strength train, which most people need to strength train more nowadays because we're all stuck at home, if you strength train, you build that capacity. So now you have a 16-ounce glass, which is your shoulder. Now if you try to fill up 12 ounces, you're not as tired. You're at less risk for injury. You can recover much faster because you haven't even exceeded that capacity. So hopefully that gives people a good analogy of why they should strength train or why should they, they should get more mobile. Makes sense. Uh, I do want to, I have a question about uh, maybe a smaller case where let's say someone is super eager, right, to do all of, like the exercises to strength train um, and say they're doing it every single day, right? And maybe they're pushing themselves a little too hard. Uh, talk to me about maybe the role of rest and recovery in terms of uh, physical therapy, just because I know we've talked a lot about strength and mobility, but rest also as an important component of uh, the recovery period. There's a, there's a big, vast difference between absolute rest and relative rest. Absolute rest is you've been training yourself, you go cold turkey, and you just sit on the couch and you don't do anything. And relative rest is if I made you, Mike, a four-day split of strength training and your nervous system is getting kind of tired and fatigued from doing it for three weeks straight, then we relatively rest where we cut down the intensity and the volume. So cut down the sets, repetitions, the weight by, let's say, half. You're still mimicking the same movements, but you're, we're giving your nervous system and your body a chance to recover from that. Um, and so that's one aspect. It's like that's relative rest. You're still doing things so that you're not just getting weaker or stiffer during the week. Let's say it's called a deload week. But you are doing something that will still say, hey, my, my nervous system gets a chance to recover. But when I get back into the sport or the activity that I want to do, I'm still mimicking those same patterns. But now I'm more refreshed. Okay. So mobility. And then also there's just so many aspects of recovery that we talk about, like sleep, stress management, sure, sure. <laughs> eating the right foods. But that's, that's probably for another, another time. Got it. So it sounds like rest and recovery, I mean, it's important, but it's also just, there's a lot of factors and, and components uh, that go into it. For sure. I know for me, for bouldering, uh, I try to boulder maybe every other day, uh, just because it's, you know, higher intensity one day, mm -hmm. the next day, it's maybe I'll go for a walk or something like that. I'll still, you know, obviously maintain exercise, mm -hmm. but knowing that I have that day to rest, uh, I guess, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. Um, I feel like it's really important and obviously sleep, like trying to get eight hours of sleep as well. Also super important. Yep. Uh, but yeah, just also for me, at least alternating every other day, um, or having maybe one to two days in between more physical straining activity, uh, has really been helpful because I have noticed when I've tried to do stuff like two days in a row, it's like, Oh, the moment I try it on the second day, I'll feel good for maybe 15, 30 minutes, but then, you know, the fatigue immediately kicks in and, you know, I just want to make sure that I don't you know, potentially injure myself from mm -hmm. going too hard, right? Um, yep. And I'm sure maybe that's something that you see with your clients as well, where 
for the ones who are more active, uh, you know, you want to make sure that they don't overdo it. There is there's a sense of just people either overtrain or they under recover, right? So it's kind of like a conundrum. So are they are they truly overtraining or are they just not getting enough sleep or eating enough protein after their strength workout, right? Or if they are truly overtraining, it's that that comes in the form of like frequency or they're lifting the same amount of weight way too many times. But can they recover better? So are they doing enough stretching and mobility right after their workout, or are they getting enough sleep? Are they eating enough, right? Because some people. You know, classically, people are trying to get stronger, but they're also trying to lose weight at the same time. And it just like it doesn't coincide with each other. You need to supply your body with the right fuel, the proper sleep, manage your stress at work, move at work as well. Because if you don't move at work, then you're a weekend warrior and then you just get hurt on the weekend. That's classic. Right. But um, yeah, the overtraining and under recovering conundrum is still something that is, is left to be said. It's still a controversy amongst like many of the fitness professionals. Like people are like, oh, yeah. You can't overtrain. You can only under recover. Like, I think you could do both, right? You do a thousand bicep curls, your bicep will fall right. off. Yeah. yeah. Like I've seen people where like they just like weight train or they just like, you know, work on one specific thing, but then like they'll like, for example, a classic one is like, they'll do bicep, ton of bicep curls, but then they can't do the whole, like, you know, put your arms behind your back, right. Yeah. And try to link, you know, your hands together because you just don't have that flexibility. And it's like, you're, I would imagine with strength training you're potentially like you were saying like a football player you're stiffening up right certain types of muscles without the flexibility mm -hmm. uh, so i can see how there's you do need that balance a little bit definitely for sure cool i do want to talk about how physical therapy kind of differs with age so you know let's say you know if you're a kid playing sports like you know you got into kind of you got, you were interested in physical therapy, like pretty early on, like when you were in middle school and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, once you're kind of past that into like high school, college, young adult, becoming a parent, then becoming a grandparent, I'm sure physical therapy means something different, um, you know, at every stage of life. So kind of talk to me about how uh, it differs for different people at different stages of life. I think for I think for kids and adolescents, adolescents, they can't stick to structure, right? And I, I don't treat a lot of um, kids anymore. Uh, I, I did when I was working corporate setting, but you have an adolescent or a kid, sometimes they can't tolerate structure. So it's really just about making the exercise fun, right? And maybe right. they're getting into like organized sports and they really want to excel at what they do, or let's say their dad or their mom is like pressuring them to do. It. So yeah, you start to get them into more organized things. They have more interest in it and they maybe don't have a deep sense of why, but it's more so just about the performance aspect. I just want to be stronger and faster than my peers. Then you get into life where it's like, hey, maybe it's maybe it's college or maybe it's like adulthood where they're mom or dad. And now things start to change meaning, right? They, they might have a lot of to-dos. They might have a lot of priorities. Maybe their work is like, you know, they're, they're really just trying to make money, you know, at that point in the early stages of 20s and 30s. So now they're not prioritizing their health. So now it's like, hey, how do you get that person to comply with building in better habits? Because it used to be all about fun, but now it's about, oh, now I need to exercise because I will die early if I don't. Right. Right. And then also now it's now you're older, depending on like whether you're older and you have good habits or older and you have like not the best optimal habits. But now it's just about enjoying that quality of life. So where do you want to be in retirement? How do you want to feel? And so that transition may be not lifting heavy weights, but just getting onto a program that you you enjoy doing and that you can sustain long-term. So I think, it, I, I guess it's a loaded question in a sense that 
it's so multidimensional. There's so many different personas and characteristics out there that you can't just pigeonhole all adolescents need this, all adults need this, all older adults need this. But, you know, you can kind of say, well, older adults will only live another 20, 30 years. So it's all, all about preserving their quality of life and giving more meaning to the exercises that they're doing. I mean, I think you answered the question quite perfectly in my honest, in honest opinion. Like you talked about how, generally speaking, from what you've seen in your experience, what those kind of aspirations are, right, for each of those different age groups. And we all have different aspirations mm-hmm. you know, as we grow older, whether it's just to have fun, right? Maybe it's more, hey, now we start to care about our health or even performance. Uh, and I think we slowly start to shift over from uh, having fun to like maintenance. Like, how do I make sure that like, if you're having, you know, becoming a parent or something like that, like you, now you have like a, you know, an ever increasingly heavier baby, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, or child that you're going to have to carry. And maybe that's where weight training, you know, and mobility and flexibility come more into play because you didn't have to necessarily worry about that when you were, you didn't have a kid Mm -hmm. and like when you're a grandparent, right. Like maybe, it's just about, I want to be able to touch my toes and I want to make sure that, and you know, the funny thing about that is that, uh, I think you might know him, Eric, uh, Eric Chan. So, yeah. He's also, I think he's a PT. Mm-hmm. He was telling me about how his clients, uh, cause he works with a lot. He worked with a lot of older mm-hmm. people. Uh, he was saying they were just happy to say to like one another, Hey, I'm able to touch my toes. Can you touch your toes? Right. Uh, like flexibility was like wealth. Like yeah. to them and just to be able to do those very simple things that you know they they had in their youth or when they were younger and to be able like you said to preserve that was something that where that aspiration changes mm-hmm. kind of over time yep everyone has different milestones everyone has different goals and aspirations so a good physical therapist should always link every exercise that they give to their client a sense of this is leading you towards your goal this is leading you to towards what you said to me on the first session I think that's very, very important because too many times I think healthcare will drift their own directions or they'll just start to pigeonhole everyone into saying, hey, you you have neck pain, you get X, Y, Z exercise. Instead, like really pinpoint it towards if Mike, grandpa wants to run, then you're not just giving them lying down exercises because lying down has nothing to do with running. But you actually have to be like, okay, well, let's see how you jog, right? Let's actually just get your running shoes on. Let's see how you jog right now. And I think that puts way more purpose and compliance towards towards their plan of care and like you said uh, it everybody is so multi-dimensional the characteristics vary so always leading back to their sense of why and their characteristics and, and what their goals are uh, makes the most difference long term got it uh, i know we've talked about a ton of different exercises the role of strength and mobility and flexibility uh talk to me a little bit how you work with uh personal trainers right like maybe there are clients that have personal trainers and maybe they get injured, they come and see you, right? Like what is that dynamic uh, between a physical therapist and a personal trainer in terms of like trying to make sure that they are on the right path uh, just because you guys focus on different things. Uh, you're more on like the pain prevent. I mean, there's, there's overlapping and differences, right? Between a personal mm-hmm. trainer and a physical therapist, but just focus on different things. So I'm just curious, you know, how you work with personal trainers. It's still at the end of the day, uh, what I call like a rehab training continuum. So rehab, rehab and training, people think they're mutually exclusive items, but rehab is just a lower intensity form of training. So if you got 
not hurt in basketball, Mike, you know, maybe your rehab involves, you're still squatting because that's really pertinent to the sport, but maybe it's not like multi-directional lateral movement and hopping yet, right? But it's leading you directly to that goal. It's just less intense. It's less intense because your tissue right now is undergoing a certain stress and maybe there's a certain tissue is damaged and needs time and healing and strength and mobility. So the continuum there is, you know, I, I work with a lot of personal trainers. I've done a lot of personal training um, seminars where I teach the personal trainers how to prevent injuries and how to look at the knee and the shoulder in a different way. So personal trainers often will, if they know me personally, they will send me their client because their client is injured. And they, they're not sure how to diagnose that specific injury. Send it to me, get them to a point because at a certain point, they've lost some capacity after they've experienced an injury. But the point of where I'm at is like, I want to build on that capacity, empower them to work out again and get back to the activities that they'd like to do. And then once that happens, then I can transition them back to saying, hey, now you need to continue this long term. You can either do it by yourself or what I would suggest is maybe go back to your personal trainer so that way they can keep you accountable. And that's where the accountability please comes into play. But I, I like that dynamic between personal training because I used to be a personal trainer. I did a lot of free personal training back when I was at Davis. But now it's like that continuum of, You've lost some capacity, so let's build up that capacity in the form of rehab, and then let's go ahead and build you back up to where you are, and then go ahead and now you know transition back to personal training. Got it. Like, how closely do you work with their personal trainers, right? Like, if they do have a personal trainer, are you like, hey, this is the rehab plan that I'm putting them on. This is how well they've completed it, and okay, I want. I know that they're going to continue to go back to personal training, you know, to you as a personal trainer. Uh, here are the things to kind of X, Y, Z to look out for. Uh, do you continue to follow up once they've, you know, let's say they've gone back to the personal trainer and see like, hey, are they actually progressing? Are they, is there any flare-ups? Like talk to me about that relationship that you have with maybe your client's personal trainers, or let's say your clients don't have a personal trainer, right? Is that something where, you know, you have a network of personal trainers that's fit for, you know, their specific physical level or the type of injury that, you know, you want to make sure that they don't re-injure again by basically having, giving, providing them an accountability partner. Cool. It sounds like a, almost like a two-part question. So I would say it is a disservice as a physical therapist to not communicate with a personal trainer and say, Hey, if they're seeing me, but they're saying they're seeing the personal trainer at the same time, what that personal trainer needs to abide by. And they, they, they get governed by law. And I say like, you know, I know their injury. You might know that they have knee pain, but I know exactly what's going on because I've assessed their joint mobility and everything. So I'll tell them exactly what they need to do if they're still if they're still continuing with them. But if that personal trainer, if I feel like they're not being compliant with what I'm saying or they're experiencing flare-ups after going personal training, I will tell the client like for sure, like, hey, you need to actually stop going through this for now and just abide by my plan because we're adding in too many confounding variables that are preventing you from moving forward. After, once they're at a point where they're experiencing less pain, they're slowly getting back, they're like 75% on the way there, you can then say, hey, you know, it's, it's up to you what you want to do. If they're a person that can't afford personal training, just say, hey, these are the XYZ things you need to do long term, so you don't need to see me again. But if it's like, hey, now you're transitioning back to the personal trainer you were going to, then I tell, you know, I communicate with the personal trainer, hey, I'm about to discharge this person. 
this is what they need to do. We've been focusing on X, Y, Z, and you need to continue to build on these things. And if you don't know how to build on these things, I will give you examples on how to build on these things. So I think the interpersonal relationship between clients, physical therapists, and personal trainer, we all need to be in alignment together because if one person's out of alignment, you know, whether it's the client that's being non-compliant or it's the personal trainer that's not abiding by the plan that we set forth, then it really doesn't work. It becomes a mess of things. So if that makes sense on how I answered that question, um, it's a very, I wouldn't say it's an intricate, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple dynamic as long as everybody's on the same page. Got it. Yeah, I was just curious about that question uh, or that topic because, you know, we have a lot of uh, mutual personal trainer friends and I'm just interested in that specific dynamic because you guys are both doing different types of activities that are maybe similar. So I was just curious, like how you guys all work together and if there was a, a specific dynamic, because most of the time it's just like, see a physical trainer, like, see a physical trainer, see a, you know, physical therapist. Right. Uh, and so some people not, might not even know the difference, like unless you're actually like saying, hey, I want to work out. Right. They might think like, oh, do I need to see a physical therapist? Right. Or do I need to see a, a personal trainer? Uh, and so I just wanted to kind of like separate those out a little bit, but also, you know, ask about how they are related to each other. A quick disclaimer about that is I know personal trainers that know biomechanics better than a physical therapist. And I also know, you that's know, so, cool. and so you, you, you got to trust. I mean, that, that's where networking comes into play, where you know the personal trainer personally and say, hey, I can trust you with a specific client because, you know, and that's the, that's the golden question. It's like when people are, are injured, should they go to a personal trainer? I would say my bias more so should always be like, you know, either go to your MD or go to see a physical therapist directly because you had you direct access to see us. Um, but, you know, I think that if you're just trying to shape up, if you have some minor ailments, I would say most of the time that can be solved with like personal training. But, you know, there are great personal trainers that have done just so many courses, they know about biomechanics and everything. And they, they address many aspects of wellness like I do that, you know, I could say, hey, maybe it's just personal training that is, is what you need. But, you know, there's always that sense of like, oh, you have the doctor of physical therapy. There's that title yeah. that says, oh, yeah, go to them because they, they will get me more physically in shape. Got it. Makes sense. Talk to me a little bit about how, uh, and from your knowledge, right? Like, you know, pro sports, there, pro sports, like physical therapy versus like the common man's physical therapy. Like, you know, how does that differ? Like professional sports, you hear about like, oh, Steph Curry injured this or has a lower back pain. Right. And those are things that, you know, I feel like now with social media, athletes in pro athlete injuries become a lot more apparent and like there's more resources on like how long does it take to recover now we have someone from let's say ucsf like chiming in like indirectly mm -hmm. about hey like you know based off of this virtual or what they know about the the situation this is the expected recovery sort of period etc so talk to me a little bit about you know the difference between the physical therapy that athletes get versus like, hey, when you go to a physical therapist, like what is that realistic expectation uh, in terms of recovery? If you have an athlete in front of you, whether it's like a collegiate athlete or a pro athlete, I think you're immediately expecting like incredible compliance for sure. You know, if they're a D1 athlete, they're on scholarship, 
they will be following everything that you say to the T, including pro athletes as well. Pro athletes, they'll also have access to massage therapy every single day. They can afford things that other regular Joes can't. So when we, people are saying, well, look at, you know, look at, look at Clay Thompson who recovered from an ace, you know, Achilles injury after, you know, 10, 10 to 12 months. You can't compare yourself to Clay Thompson because Clay Thompson one has genetically gifted things that we don't. And plus they have a full staff, millions of dollars of staff that are at, that is at his side every step of the way. So to say the recovery period between my ACL versus like, you know, Steph Curry or LeBron James ACL, you can't really compare just due to the fact that we're different morphologies and also uh, different demands. Their full-time job is athletes. Our full-time job is other things. So the, the athlete gets different levels of care, but also you're expecting a certain amount of commitment from them versus maybe your 70-year-old grandma named Gertrude. You know, it's, it's very different dynamic in that sense. Got it. I know LeBron James, right? Doesn't he have a cryotherapy like chamber or something like that, that he like basically spends time in after like every game, like I'm assuming every home game or something like that, just to like yeah. reduce, you know, the swelling and uh, the pain that comes along with just, you know, physical wear and tear. And like, he's invested, I think like, I forgot what the number is. It's like at least like a hundred million you know, dollars or something like in his own health. Right. And this is not like injury, like it's not recovering from an injury. This is all like injury prevention. Um, So it's actually quite amazing. Right. Like from a pro athlete perspective, like the LeBron James story of like, here's someone who's never had a really serious injury been playing since he's 18. You know, he's what a good 240 to 250 pounds, still able to move really fast. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, that's that's an amazing from I'm guessing from even from a physical therapy like perspective that's kind of an amazing feat as a as an athlete to not get injured have that weight but also how much he takes care of himself to not get injured over course well of that's the separation right time. well you got that bell curve right so you have like these anomalies that are like on the right side of the bell curve that are just one they're genetically gifted but two they're genetically gifted so they've gotten somewhere with their talents and their their skill set so that now they can afford much better care for their tissues and their joints and their ligaments every single day, you know, versus again, people that have poor socioeconomic status, barely can afford even standard physical therapy or personal training. And you can see why, you know, some of them are dealing with chronic pain because of, again, they're poor, they are more destitute, they can't afford a massage every day. So it's like just that continuous gap financially, uh, but also genetically as well, right? The genetically is like the poor, the poor, you're poor, the richer get richer in that sense with, uh, the level of care that you're going to get. Got it. I'm curious to know how physical therapy knowledge, um, whether it's education and whatnot, how has that like advanced and evolved over the last, like say 30, 40 years, right? I would imagine physical therapy was probably taught one way as people started to do more research or education or, you know, uh, trials and clinical studies, like that education has evolved. So Say maybe mm-hmm. the physical therapist advice that you know was available forty years ago, right, is probably going to be somewhat different from today potentially. So talk to me about like that evolution of physical therapy uh, education and how where is it sort of trending? If there are any trends that we should kind of be aware of. 
that's such a loaded question because the the side of like the physical therapy student they are getting better quality education than I am now because I've been out of school for seven years and research will always change over and over and over again so we're constantly debunking certain myths we're catching certain physical therapists that are older than us in terms of hey they used to think for example keep your knees behind your toes and that's the best thing for the knees but actually it's been shown that you bring your knees over your toes because that's what you need to do to get the knees stronger so you know that there's so many of those myths and fallacies and things that used to be true in the 90s and now it's like now things have changed you know people with ankle injuries ankle ligament sprains classic like just a classic ankle ligament sprain basketball in the 90s or like early 90s they used to cast them for that they used to cast them and put them in a boot and just let them sit for like six to eight weeks now i sprained my ankle like you know two years ago and i was immediately in the gym doing weight training like immediately on the ankle so just times have changed and the people how people think have really changed and trust me you know like let's say five ten years down the road things that i say on social media things that i say on my youtube that can be proven false in five to ten years and I, it's up to the therapist in terms of keeping up with the latest research and evidence. And that's that continuous care or like continuing to become the best version of your standard profession as best as possible. I guess in what way, like, how do you keep up with the new knowledge that's coming into play? Because you were saying that how, you know, new graduates are going to have access to you know, the latest information, right? And maybe some of that's like proprietary, whether it's like different kinds of studies ran by, you know, this specific hospital or something like that. Now that you have like your own business and maybe you don't have access to the same types of resources, like where do you find those resources that help you change and evolve your program uh, so that you're continuing, you know, to get better, but also to stay on top of the latest trends? Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, I mean, the mindset, the mindset of continuing to be to be up to date and to be the best version of a physical therapist as you can is, 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 is part of who I am, who I identify as. So information will come to us in so many different places. So we, you know, just because they get textbook stuff doesn't mean that we don't have the same resources. So, you know, there, there's many physical therapy associations that will, that will send you newsletters, that will send you the most recent articles. So that's one. It's like email newsletters. You also see physical therapists that are constantly popping up on social media now, and some of them are really, really good. And they'll actually put, here's the, here's the research article. This is why I said this. And then you look it up for yourself on PubMed and Cochrane and all these other, uh, you know, all these research databases to figure it out for yourself on whether it was true or not. So I think it's really at this day and age with like phones and tablets and computers, information comes to us so quickly and you need to be able to cipher through it and say, hey, this is the this is the BS versus this is the stuff that's proven by research. So I don't think that I'm just because I'm out seven years doesn't mean that I don't have the same resources. But it really is up to me or up to, you know, the therapist that is able to keep up with all that. Got it. Uh, you talked about different types of resources and, you know, people that you follow. Who are fa- some of your favorite uh, kind of physical therapists, or even, I guess you could say to a certain degree, like personal trainers, right. That you follow, uh, or, you know, take inspiration from that's really changed the way that you approach not only physical therapy, but also potentially how you want to market and message 
your brand of uh, physical therapy tips and tricks? Yeah, that, that's a. I saw that. I know when I when I heard that question, I was like, "Hey, you know, do I?" You know, I used to follow people like Jeff Cavalier, who just marketed himself really well. He's one of the most renowned physical therapists. Um, that really, he's you know he's making good money and he's having a, actually a really good impact on people's lives. And then uh, people like Adrian Lowe and Laura Mosley, who kind of pioneered the the biopsychosocial aspects of of pain. And I continue to like look a lot at their research as well. Um, but actually, you know, I'm I'm really inspired by just I guess many entrepreneurs outside of physical therapy that lead me to what I'm doing because you know I can be the smartest physical therapist, but if I don't know how to market myself appropriately, or if I don't know how to have a lasting impact on people psychologically, you know, people like Dean Graziosi or Tony Robbins or you know some of the biggest influencers like like James Clear who who taught me a lot about habits. You know, if I'm not following those people, I think that those people have had a greater impact than some of the famous physical therapists or famous personal trainers out there, to be honest, because they know how to speak the parts and they know how to market themselves. But again, you know, the marketing purpose is not just to generate revenue, but it's to have a sense of purpose and know how to get your message out there. So I, I follow, read tons of books and watch and listen to tons of podcasts and, um, yeah, I guess Rob, Rob Dial, Rob Dial, Mindset Mentor, That that's a huge one that I listen to all the time because it, it just keeps me afloat with not just me as a physical therapist, but how my mindset should be around like entrepreneurship along with having impact on people's lives. Awesome. I uh, want to start wrapping things up a little bit. I'm going to move into our lightning round. So you kind of touched on some things like books and podcasts and stuff like that. So I'm curious to know what are your top five books that you've read over the past, I'll just say two years, right? Uh, just because yeah. right now it's like maybe only a quarter, but over the past two years, what are some of the top five books that you've read um, that you could potentially list off as things that have inspired you? That is, all right, well, I've read so many books, but hopefully I don't I don't mess this up. Uh, I like Balance by Andrew Hellum. I like Atomic Habits by James Clear. I like The One Thing by Jane Papasan, by Jay Papasan. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Ah, oh, what's another good book that I've read? Man, I can't think of the, the last book right now. Maybe How to Not Give an F by, by I think it's Mark Banson. I think that was a great right, book. Right. Uh, or, the, or, the subtle, or The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, something Giving like that. Yeah. I think that was a very, a very telling book about not really giving enough about what people think and just speaking your mind. Yeah. Those are some great books. I have read atomic habits and I really enjoyed that one. That was one of my favorite ones. Uh, mm. The seven, the, the one by Stephen Covey, I can't remember like the full name of it. Uh, but that was something I read uh, a long time ago. It's like, I think my dad had it in his, it's because it's a pretty old book. So my dad had it yeah. in his library and it's just like one of those books that I just like uh, pulled off you know, his bookshelf in his office. And, you know, I read it uh, when I was living at home. And I do remember that it, it definitely resonated with me at that that point in time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of books. And I, I think I read so many that like, sometimes I'm just so enthralled in the, the knowledge, but I forget the author's name. So, um, but podcasts, I mean, podcasts are huge, because I can still get my workouts in, but still be running while listening to something. So, 
yeah, if, if people are looking to learn more, and I think that it's it's your duty, like we, we have so much information to come to us that like in order to get somewhere in, in life, physically, mentally, financially, you have no excuse to not learn. So definitely get onto podcasts, definitely try to kill two birds with one stone, you know, listen to Mike's podcast, obviously. And uh, yeah, that's all I got to say. You know, the pursuit of knowledge is is so vast and you have no excuse to not learn. You know, the funny thing is that, uh, you know, I've been talking with a couple people who are of Gen Z. Uh, so I think that's what, like 2000, someone was born in 2000 to like 2012 or something. I think that's like the official designated time period. And we were talking about how they have such, they've lived in a world where there is so much abundance of information that essentially anyone in that kind of age group can find their own community. Uh, their niche mm-hmm. community, whether it's through TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, etc. Um, and even though, like as millennials, like we grew up in a somewhat digital age, obviously with dial-up to broadband and stuff like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. You know, it was definitely more friends connected. It was connected to like, oh, do you? How do you stay connected with the friends? Versus like mm-hmm. for Gen Z, it's like they can stay connected with friends, but they can also be connected to a whole nother world, right? Of interests, like if a bunch of people on TikTok like you know, physical therapy, right? They can find like the world's encyclopedia and resources of, of the new, whether it's like they have to, whether they have to sort through a bunch of content, whether mm-hmm. it's true or false, um, or, you know, we obviously don't want to make sure it's like fake news or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they can sort through so much information and they can really find a community for anything. Whereas like maybe for us back then, it was just like, go to a library, open an encyclopedia. Like there wasn't a Wikipedia maybe until we were like in college or anything yep. like that. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's really amazing uh, for for that generation. And then we think about our parents' generation, that's like, we have to teach them, right? About mm-hmm. how to access information, you know, uh, trying to break habits of, you know, maybe what, you learned when you were in your twenties, uh, when they were in their twenties, doesn't still hold true kind of today. And, you know, that there is, uh, there is a path for them to continue to change their opinion through, through the internet and through knowledge, uh, and whatnot. I think that just goes to say that, like I said, anything that I say today and, uh, people might watch this five years from now and might be like, dude, what Dr. J said was false. Right. And I will, I will approach everything with a sense of skepticism, but I will also say, hey, I'm willing to learn from like younger generations. So, you know, when my, when my son's 20, 30 years of age and he's teaching me certain things, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm not, you know, that's not what I did back in my day. You know, I'm, I'm going to be like, hey, like, you know, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to listen. And uh, that's how, uh, you know, that, that's what's part of being human is, is, is learning as much as you can and adapting to the times. Yeah, adapting to the times is really important because everyone is going, making decisions through a different set of contexts. Uh, And so without that context, someone's decision might be different. And so that's something that uh, I'm very cognizant about is as I get older uh, and let's say for people who are potentially mentoring or talking to that are younger, I'm not necessarily going to give them the same advice. I'll say like, this was my context when I made the decision. just kind of let that uh, simmer for a little bit. And, you know, you can kind of make the decision based off of your own uh, experiences and context. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key things about not not saying like, hey, just because I did it this way, you need to do it that way. Everyone's going to have, like you said before, different types of aspirations when they're younger, when they're older. 
And it's more about understanding that context for those people uh, and how do you help them enable to get where they want to go um, based off of those aspirations and your own experience um, in terms of unblocking. Absolutely. Things Couldn't agree more, man. Them to get there. Uh, next question is, uh, who do you think this year is going to win the NBA championship? Knock on wood, because I don't. I never like to say stuff blatantly, because you say it out loud with confidence, and then it turns the other way. But yeah, I have uh, some Golden State Warriors socks on right now, and I think, I think that despite awesome. James Wiseman not being there, not having a big, I mean, man, that's a that crazy lineup of four shooters plus Draymond. I mean, I can't. That's really hard to go up against, and then all of a sudden now Devin Booker just strained his hamstring, grade one hamstring, so. We'll see how that affects him, you know, long term, or whether they even get past the first or second round. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm gonna say Warriors for now. But I'm always gonna, I'm also gonna knock on wood and say like, not, not, not super confident yet because they, they kind of ate it the, the second half of the season. That is true. Uh, during these playoffs, uh, they, now they just finished up their second game of the playoffs and, and up two zero. Uh, health obviously is a big factor, you know, for them, uh, going into the, the rest of the playoff series and, you know, going to the championship. We'll see, we'll see how things go. Um, I think that's, yeah, definitely health across the board during the playoff season, right. Is like one of the major factors yeah. in terms of how far they go, you know, health, luck, right. Matchups. Uh, it's all, you know, a big combination of, of how things kind of yep. shake out. Uh, my last question for you is, you know, who do you think you could introduce to the pod that you think would be a good fit or has uh, information that you would love to see get shared much more often? Um, man, I think one of the, my mentors and people that I really respect is uh, probably my sister who, you know, got me out of, I think she's one of the pivotal people that got me out of depression, you know, when I, when my business first started and she is definitely still somebody that continues to help me, you know, mentorship cause she's years beyond me as a business, although she's in insurance and, you know, I'm not even sure if state farm is allowing people to podcast, right. Uh, cause they have, might have strict regulations. Sure. But yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, I might have to get back to you on that one and see, you know, what are some other people I could think of. That's somebody that pops up right away. Um, yeah. And I might know a couple, you know, like maybe like health coaches or financial people that have really inspired me. So I'll get back to you on that one. All right. No worries. I know this is a lightning round, so you probably weren't expecting all these questions mm -hmm. and putting you on the spot, but that is the purpose yep. of a lightning round. Uh, where can people find you um, and your services and all the things that you offer from a physical therapy? Yeah, I've expanded to many different places. So one is I just started my YouTube, which is youtube.com slash flex with Dr. J. So D-O-C-T-O-R-J-A-Y. I post content probably like three days a week nowadays, and that might slow down later. Um, my Instagram also flex with Dr. J. And I do have a Facebook support group that has well over a hundred hours of people seeing my ugly mug talk about pain relief and everything. So if you look up pain relief support for parents or just go to www.flexdrjday.online slash group, uh, you'll be able to find the group, answer a couple of membership questions and then 
have access to a crazy load of information, probably beyond what you actually need. Um, I think those are majority of the places. And yeah, people can go to www.flexdrdr.com as well just to read my about section, read about what I do and what my purpose is in life, my mission statement, everything like that. And um, yeah, Jason at FletcherDrDay.com. If, if you guys want to email me, happy to have a conversation with you or just to answer a few questions for you. Awesome. Uh, I'll make sure to include all that information in the description below. But Jason, I really want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. I learned a lot. Uh, and the funny thing is, like, we didn't necessarily talk about like the actual exercises or anything like that, because that's not the important part. The important part is, you know, the reason why the psychological aspect behind wanting to, you know, be preventative about your health, but also making sure that you stay uh, on the path to recovery, uh, you know, as someone you know, that cares about their overall health. So that's something I really appreciated and took away. From, Absolutely. Uh, Hopefully you learned something. I definitely learned a lot about you and, you know, what, what you're trying to do with this podcast. So yeah, um, I'm excited to, to listen to this own podcast just to like re-listen this. And uh, I look forward to seeing, you know, more episodes. All right. Thanks everyone. Take care.